Welcome to The Learning Curve, a new podcast about all things education. My name is Kara Kandel of Pioneer Institute, and I'm joined by my co-host, Bob Bowden of Choice Media. Bob, how are you doing today? Doing great. We're now veteran podcasters. This is our second episode. Second episode. Here we go. It right. keeps getting better, right? <laughs> Straight upward. Straight up. Well, listen, we've got some really great uh, sort of news stories, stories of the day to dig into here. Um, one in particular out of Los Angeles is uh, is near and dear to my heart, having been the lady who wrote uh, uh, the the best-selling book on Massachusetts charter schools for Pioneer Institute. You can buy it on Amazon, I might add. But it, this is a story out of Los Angeles. We found it on KTLA 5, uh, talking about a new bill that's about to just try and put another nail in the coffin for California's charter sector. So the legislature has sent to uh, Governor Newsom to sign a bill that is um, basically going to do away with um, the only remaining independent authorizer, the state board authorizer in California, and turn over all authorizing authority to school districts. This has my head exploding just a little bit, because um, if there's one thing we know from the research on charter schools, it's that districts don't make good authorizers. Um, but this is clearly, just in my opinion, Bob, a, a yet another brilliant strategy by the teachers unions and the status quo to make sure that we're regulating charters to death so that they um, can't be effective, even though we know that when they are autonomous, charters, California's charter schools, like many, are in fact very effective and more effective than their district counterparts. But um, this is looking like yet another win for a status for the status quo. And I'm pretty concerned um, as to the effect this is going to have, the ripple effect this could have throughout the nation. What do you think, Bob? Uh, I, th I think that you have a propensity for language that's far more kind of dignified and restrained than mine, Tara. <laughs> I'm horrified it, by this. For, I mean, first of all, you say brilliant strategy. I don't want to call the unions brilliant in their strategy. They basically just yeah. got a new governor instead of Governor Jerry Brown, who uh, had founded two charter schools in Oakland back when he was mayor or before uh, you know, now has Governor Gavin Newsom, who is, you know, uh, practically an employee of the teachers union. I say practically. Uh, he seems to be certainly working. Put it this way. Uh, you know, uh, so 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 before in California, you would have to apply to the school district to be authorized as a charter school. But if they turned you down, which they did often, they uh, had to turn you down on the basis of a lack of merit in your application. And then if they, if they, even if they still did turn you down for that reason, you could apply to the county and then to the state. This new bill says that they can turn you down for fiscal reasons, meaning if the district loses any money at all, or they expect they might lose any revenue to the school district due to this uh, new charter school being approved, that is grounds for rejecting the most perfect application in the world that would undoubtedly save thousands of kids' lives. They can say, who cares? It will cost us a penny if we say yes, and so we will reject it for that reason. So that is a new reason they can reject, which is basically, it just gives them carte blanche to reject. And then here's the even bigger deal, is that, uh, is that no longer will the state be in the process of overturning these, there'll still be a county uh, appeal, but the counties, by the way, are, are 
almost all organized against the charter school movement in California. We save for a few exceptions like Orange, but most of the county school boards are are predisposed against charters. So by taking away the state uh, ability to appeal to the state, the State Department of Education to appeal your rejection if you're a new charter school founder and you have a great application, by taking away that state appeal, uh, you pretty much now have have sort of you know, ended the ability for new charters to be created. You have created. nowhere to go. But that's exactly, my friend, why I say this is, in fact, a brilliant strategy. Because this, let's let's not think that this was just pulled out of thin air. In a post-Janus environment, you know, it's um, the unions need another playbook here. And they have been very successfully picking off the, the charter schools that are serving kids and, and doing it in what they believe to be the interest of adults. I'd put to you, they aren't even the interest of adults, but they are. And the other part of this, though, here, the big lesson learned, I think, is that you got to have a bulletproof charter school law. So it's a loophole in California's law that even allows this to happen because it doesn't establish, you know, it, it, it gives the legislature the ability to take the state board's authority away. And so when we are constantly across this country passing charter school laws that are mediocre, and I don't care who's rating these laws, whether it's, you know, the National Alliance or another body, when we're passing mediocre charter school laws, we're making these schools that parents and kids choose vulnerable to just these kinds of politics. Well, here's the thing that that also bugs me about it is that our own side, there was a bit of an internecine fight. So president and CEO of California Charter Schools Association, Myrna Castrion, was quiet. They, the, the California Charter School Association was neutral on this bill. And I read that like a lot of people and said, what? How are they neutral on this? Meanwhile, uh, Eric Primack, who's the executive director of the Charter Schools Development Center, vocally opposed. So the newspapers, whenever they were covering this, they needed someone opposed to this bill. They would go to Eric Primack because the Charter School Association was neutral. And you're like, why would they be neutral? Well, apparently there was backroom dealing where uh, before, you know, in, in exchange, you know, this is the rumor mill, but in exchange for their neutrality, they offered, OK, we won't we'll give you the county appeal instead of having no appeal at all after the district. And. Also, even more of a kind of scuttlebutt rumor mill thing is they were saying, by the way, Charter Association, if you really oppose this strongly, you know, there's millions of dollars of state charter funding the next three years of the Newsom administration that could be imperiled if we hate you enough. So why don't you just be quiet for your own good? And that way we won't mess with your charter funding that bad. And we'll give you this county appeal, even though we're taking away the state appeal. And that my view is a fight would have been better than a deal. And here's why. I think the charter parents are like a sleeping giant. And uh, I had to look up, it was Yamamoto in World War II who said that with, after Pearl Harbor, that they, that, they, after, you know, that they had awakened a sleeping giant of America. I feel like the charter parents are the Yamamoto sleeping giant of sort of political advocacy that could have been invoked and uh, energized if there had been a fight, even if the fight was lost. I would have preferred Well, that. unfortunately, my friend, as I sit here in Massachusetts, home of question two, um, I, I can't disagree with you, but uh, charter advocates have 
never done enough to mobilize uh, parents. That said, we listen, we've got a couple other yeah. great stories here that I think we need to discuss. Two that I really like, one out of Indianapolis and another out of Norman, Oklahoma, describing how um, school districts are now um, turning to virtual programming and allowing more, more virtual schools and virtual classes. Uh, charter schools have long been criticized. Virtual charter schools have long been sort of, you know, really on the chopping block in many states, incredibly unpopular in many states. And we should say that, you know, some are effective and some aren't. But I think that these two stories detailing how districts are now finally realizing that virtual schooling can really work for some kids. And in fact, that some communities, some parents really need it. Let's think about rural communities. Let's think about um, kids in schools where um, they need more personalized programming, challenging, sure. rigorous. Or kids in hospitals, content. kids who are training for the Olympics, all kinds Absolutely. of. Absolutely. Uh, Lots of room for this. And it's sort of like, oh, okay, now that the districts are finally catching on to the fact that when we use technology well, um, it can really serve kids well. It's um, it's it's suddenly okay. I'd, I'd love your thoughts on this one. What I'm watching on this stuff is, so now the districts say, okay, we want in too. We want online learning also. We want to do it also. Okay. I want to see how they count attendance because the electro electronic classroom of tomorrow uh, of Ohio, ECOT, it was called, was shut down. And why? Because of this attendance controversy. So in other words, they, they required a certain number of hours of login time that was required for an ECOT student to be considered a student. So for the ECOT to be paid the tuition for that student, they had to have the student logged in a certain number of hours. The state forced ECOT to actually report the number of hours, claimed that that represented fewer eligible students than ECOT had billed the state for, and that, you know, in an ECOT, that online charter in Ohio said, well, what about when kids are just reading books? They're not logged in. What about when they're writing a paper on a word processor? They're not processor. They're not logged in. And, and so the state said, oh, we'll just have them keep their own uh, separate logs of how much time they spend uh, doing all this. And you're like, really, a nine year old is going to keep like a time log like a lawyer? You know, like anyway, so. You know, where this went was Ohio ended up saying, too bad, you've got to reimburse us because the hours logged in wasn't enough. And ECOT went out of business. Now that the districts are doing pure online learning, I want to see how they count attendance. Because, you know, obviously you can have kids sitting in classroom for hours and days and months at a time learning almost nothing. But the fact they're physically sitting there counts for their attendance. Whereas online learning is quite different. For you to be logged in, you have to kind of be actively learning. Absolutely. So it's a very different thing. It is. But I, I, would, I would say the good part of this story is like, listen, we have to realize that the vast majority of kids in this country are still educated in school districts. So if school districts are finally going to get on board and realize that this kind of educational opportunity is going to work for a lot of kids, not all kids, but for a lot of kids, then we really have to be thinking carefully about what accountability looks like, what appropriate accountability looks like. So not not talking about overregulation. I'm not talking about time logs, et cetera. But how do we really look at outcomes, pure outcomes in these schools and hold providers accountable for quality while at the same time realizing that this can be just an incredible tool for learning, even in schools that might currently think they would never need have a need for this kind of technology. I know at my own kids' school, we have several children who, um, you know, are speak 
languages other than English in the home and the school doesn't have the resources to provide advanced education for these kids. So they leverage technology. This is exactly the kind of thing that we should be thinking about. And the longer we say virtual education doesn't work, we can't have virtual charter schools, we can't have, then the, the, longer we're putting off what's really the inevitable and to to refuse to think about how to do this in a in a really high quality way i think is incredibly dangerous for one little tag on that for me is just i'm a little bemused to to watch it oh really because districts are going to go deep into online learning i wonder what the marketing brand stickiness is there for district online learning once a kid is learning online purely how easier might it be to switch to another provider of online learning instead of your local school district, maybe one that doesn't have <laughs> tenure rules, or maybe one that, that does compensate the great teachers better by with bonuses, and gee, I wonder, it may not be, uh, you know, gee, I wonder how long, uh, anyway, uh, you get the idea. Always an advocate, Bob. <laughs> Always yeah. an advocate. <laughs> Well, actually, though, this brings us, there is a tie here to our next story, which is um, from Vice.com, America's newest outsourced job, public school teachers. So I'm, I'm going to get the, to the hook here, but, you know, the, to, to how it ties in. This is a story saying, you know, talking about, oh, there's a great teacher, teacher shortage, and don't you know that the U.S. has been using J-1 visas to bring teachers in from different countries? Fine and true and well and good. What I think we need to recognize, though, and what I think this story overlooks, unfortunately, is that we don't have a mass teacher shortage everywhere. In fact, in a lot of highfalutin, wealthy suburban school districts, you've got lots of teachers knocking down to get in the door. What we have is a shortage of teacher talent in key areas, in the STEM, in math and science, technology, engineering, right? And we have a shortage of key talent working, willing to work in certain places. And I think, you know, I've always wondered, what would it look like? We talk about all these things, you know, back to California with their uh, brilliant law that they passed years ago, limiting class sizes, which led to lower teacher quality, right? But we talk all the time about, um, you know, having small class sizes. When I think sometimes, what would it look like to have a larger class size with a really brilliant teacher piped in? I don't care if that teacher's in, you know, Manila, piped in to teach the kids what they need to know. Universities do that all the time. Yeah, if you take like Chem 101 or something, you sit in a big room. Uh, Yeah, so I have three quick reactions. One, it's not every day here at Choice Media we see Dateline Manila, which we did with this story. (laughs) But my first, so my first reaction though uh, is really after coming after the the year after Red for Ed teachers union strikes made national news. It is interesting to see oh, uh, uh, teachers asking for more money. Look at all these uh, J one visa. You know, five hundred school districts across the country with with J one visa teachers is a bigger number than I thought. Number two is is how these things usually go in life, foreign competitions first and robots tend to be second. That's what happened on the factory floor, right? We first had uh, factories going abroad. Then we had a lot of robots in factories. And uh, gee, you wonder how, you know, the future of AI and teaching and stuff like that. But then but then my third reaction is, yeah, with these, you know, with these 500 school districts with teachers on J-1 visas, think about how the NEA and AFT have been pro-increased immigration and pro-sanctuary cities policies and things like that. I just I just wonder aloud how long that will remain if this really steps up. I mean, I understand J-1 visas are not illegal immigration. They're actually legal, and they're, I would argue, theoretically more defensible than a sanctuary city policy that would help illegal immigrants. But you do kind of wonder uh, what... Uh, 
I don't know, uh, what teachers unions, how they might feel, how their rank and file would feel about a, assuming there's a big, huge jump in you know, Filipino teachers coming here on visas. Gee, you kind of wonder if the NEA and AFT might get a new uh, philosophy on immigration. Um, I don't know. And I'm going to push back. I mean, I'm sitting here right in in what many would consider a sanctuary city. So we might have a difference of opinion on that, my friend. But okay. I think that, um, you know, it, when it comes down, all the NEA cares about is uh, is who's paying dues. So let's talk about who they're bringing in and whether or not those teachers are, are high quality. I mean, it could be at the end of the day that we have um, if, if we're going abroad to find teachers from other countries, I want to know what those teachers are doing and if they're doing well and if they're serving kids well. And at the end of the day, um, we have a huge problem in this country with um, educating high quality teachers and making sure that we retain them in our classrooms. Uh, Maybe we have something to learn from some of the folks that are coming over here. You never know. You never know. We now turn to our big interview of the week. Erica Smith has been an attorney with the Institute for Justice since way back in 2011. She's been a guest on Fox and Friends. Uh, Her writing has been published in the Washington Times, New York Post. And this is interesting. The Virginian pilot, the Norfolk, Virginia newspaper, it says she's been published in. But she is not the senior editor of the Norfolk, Virginia newspaper, although that person is also named Erica Smith. (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah, in fact, she's on Twitter. It says if you just go at Erica Smith, that's the Norfolk, Virginia senior editor, Erica Smith. At any rate, uh, this Erica Smith is with the Institute for Justice, and she joins Kara and I now for an interview. Erica, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So um, let's begin. There's a a case, uh, I guess, uh, uh, Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. It's headed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Why don't we just start with kind of an overall, uh, I guess, an overview, I should say. Who is Kendra Espinoza? What's the case all about? Well, Kendra Espinoza is a single mom who wants to use a state scholarship to help send her children to a private school. Her two daughters were initially in public school, but they were struggling. It just wasn't working for them. And so she decided to put them into a Christian school near her home. And as soon as she sent them there, the kids were flourishing, very happy. But she's currently working three jobs just to make tuition payments. Now, Back in 2015, she thought that this would no longer be a problem because the legislature passed a new scholarship program, and it was designed to help families just like Kendra who don't have a lot of money but really just want to get their kids a good education. Now, this program was flourishing for a couple years until the state Supreme Court struck it down just because it allowed parents to use scholarships at religious schools. We have appealed that decision, uh, claiming that it violates the free exercise clauses, the equal protection clause, the establishment clause, and it's now up at the U.S. Supreme Court. So do they strike it all down or just, in other words, if it's a secular school, it's okay, it's the religious schools that are the problem, or do they strike the whole program down? They actually struck down the entire program, but only because it allowed parents to go to religious schools. But the reason they struck down the entire program is because they said that the religious aspects of the program pretty much just tainted the entire thing, and there was no way to allow the program to continue (laughs) just giving scholarships to kids at secular schools. So now there is no program. It's it's 
tragic. All these parents were relying on these scholarships. Sure. Yeah. Erica, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit. I mean, you all have um, a lot of great resources, you at the Institute for Justice, on your website, um, detailing not only the history of these types of cases, but, you know, the history in which they're rooted, as well as the history of court decisions. I'm wondering if you could, for our listeners, explain what Blaine Amendments are and explain what this has to do with the Espinosa case, Um, and maybe a little bit about some of the other Supreme Court decisions or even um, lower court decisions related to Blaine Amendments. Sure. So the basis for the Montana Supreme Court's decision, the reason they struck down the scholarship program was Montana's Blaine Amendment. Now, this is a provision in the Montana State Constitution that says that the state can't use public money to aid sectarian schools. And this language is important because it's actually in 37 different other state constitutions. Now, on its face, it looks like, oh, they just want to preserve separation in a church and state. But the reality is much, much darker. These provisions came about in the mid and late 1800s to discriminate against Catholic schools. And that's why they use that word sectarian, because sectarian is code for Catholic. At the time, all the public schools were actually Protestant. They read from the Protestant Bible and sang Protestant hymns, read from anti-Catholic textbooks. And when all the Catholic immigrants were coming to this country, they were not happy about this. And they wanted to either take the Protestantism out of the public schools or have funding for their own Catholic schools. People were terrified that the status quo would be changed, that there would be this competitor to the public schools, that everyone would have equal access to uh, education, and they enacted these programs, uh, these provisions across the country. And if you look at the legislative statements in enacting these provisions, it's it's very clear that it was out of anti-Catholicism. Tell us about the Trinity Lutheran case and how that plays in here. So Trinity Lutheran also involved a Blaine Amendment that was um, Missouri's Blaine Amendment, and that amendment was used to block a church from participating in a state program to actually resurface playgrounds. Right. Uh, the state the state had decided that a lot of kids get their knees skinned on playgrounds, so they wanted to provide softer material with recycled uh, tire scraps. They opened the program up to anyone who wanted to apply. A church was initially selected to be one of 40 applicants that had one of the best applications. They were going to give them the money for the playground, and then they realized, oh, wait, this is a church. We can't give this to you. Right. And they took that case all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court found that that the denial of their application uh, discriminated against their free exercise rights. And the principle being that if an organization is worthy of government money, it's worthy of government money. It doesn't suddenly become unworthy just because it has a religious affiliation. But to some degree, the Trinity Lutheran was limited, right, in a way that this case will go further, this new case. That's right, because in Trinity Lutheran, you had money going directly to a religious organization. Here, you don't even have that. You have money going directly to families who happen to be picking, maybe they're picking a religious school, maybe they're they're not. And so there's still an open question about whether Trinity Lutheran applies to a program like this, which is about parental choice and is not directly funding um, an institution. So we are very excited to finally have this resolved by the Supreme Court. 
it has been an issue for 30 years that there's been uncertainty about these school choice programs in terms of whether they have to allow parents to choose religious schools. And finally, that will be resolved. Yeah, and in many cases, Erica, um, choice advocates see this as 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 quite a huge opportunity. Um, that said, we know that you know we've 38 states. Correct me if I'm wrong. With Blaine amendments, which it's it's a lot of states, and um, even if this ruling goes in favor of parent choice, um, do you think that there's it's going to be legally possible in all of those states that do have Blaine amendments to see the kind of scholarship programs or education savings account programs or voucher programs that choice advocates are hoping for? I think for the vast majority of them, it it will be possible. Now, to clarify, even though 37 or 38, however you count them, states do have Blaine amendments, uh, a lot of those Blaine amendments have been interpreted by courts to be almost harmless. So Blaine amendments are really only a problem in about 14 states. This this ruling, when we win this case, it will open it up to almost legally to almost all of those states that they would be allowed to have a publicly funded uh, school choice program. And it would just be up to the legislature at that point whether they wanted to pass such a program. You say almost, I'm guessing, because states like Michigan have kind of non-Blaine-Blaine Blaine amendments, right? They have, they have uh, you know, amendments that came far later than the 19th century Blaine amendments in most of these other states. Like Michigan's one says just no money for private school period not even religious uh, exactly or otherwise exactly. yeah so so it's it's a, a little complicated but for the overwhelming majority of states this is going to be a very very big deal yeah at which point it will then just come down to the political will of legislatures to um, to not find other ways to uh, to block these uh, programs that have proven worthy in so many places right that's true. That's and from a bigger perspective, well, what, you know, uh, so many times, all of us, I'm sure, have heard people say, you know, that's why our Constitution has the separation of church and state. And you would have to remind them, no, actually, our Constitution never has the phrase separation of church and state anywhere. In fact, we have in God we trust on our money and army chaplains and the U.S. House of Representatives opens with a prayer every day, just upheld in 2017, by the way. Um, and so... I guess I'm just wondering how far this goes from your point of view. Is this is the new Espinosa case? Is it uh, is it a school choice limited case, or would this? You know, when I was a kid, there was some prayer in public schools, even. Uh, and so I'm dating myself, but uh, it, it, how far would this extend? Would it extend to aspects of life, of public life, uh, beyond just private school choice programs? I think this this case would be very limited to school choice programs. A lot of the issues that you're talking about have already been litigated, and the court kind of sections different religious liberty issues off in their own separate cabins and applies different legal tests to all those decisions. So things like free um, prayer in schools and what you could have on on money, uh, that's already litigated in like its own separate category. So I don't think this case would affect any of those, those cases. What this case will do is allow every parent in the country, at least to have the legal right to have free choice in one of these school choice programs. And these programs are already exist in about, um, 29 states. They've had tremendous effects on families 
it's just a real practical uh, day-to-day effect on, on helping low-income and middle-income families. Erica, I'm wondering if you can tell us, you gave us a little bit of the background about Kendra Espinoza herself and um, the choices that she would like to make for her children in terms of education. Um, But certainly in the process of preparing for this case, I'm sure you've met many families from a lot of different places who um, either have accessed these choice programs or who would like to access these choice programs. Could you paint a little bit more of the um, personal picture for us of of the, the, the children and families? that are really looking for different opportunities? Sure, sure. So the public schools work for a lot of kids, but they don't work for a lot of others. Education is not one size fits all. We see a lot of situations where kids are being bullied very violently sometimes in public schools. They don't want to go to school anymore because they're afraid, they're unhappy, they're depressed. We see other instances where children are academically gifted, but they don't have the resources in their public school to meet their academic needs. On the other side of the spectrum, some children have different learning disabilities or are severely disabled. And again, their public school is not able to to help them in the way that they really deserve. Now, some, some public schools can, but every public school is different, especially in inner cities right here where I am in, in D.C. We see very sad stories where the kids are sitting in class just essentially with their teacher as a babysitter and they're not learning. Now, parents should not be confined to this, a school just because it happens to be the one assigned to their zip code. Every parent should have the right to choose the school that best meets their children's individual needs. You know, I was surprised how modest this program was. Average scholarship value $500 for the Montana uh, tax credit scholarship. That that is just the result of the litigation. Uh, Unfortunately, this, what happens when you have a school choice program and there's a legal cloud over it is that people are afraid to donate to it uh, Uh. because the legality of the program is still not established. I fully expect that after this program is reinstated, that donations would go up and the scholarships would be much, much larger. I see. All right. Well, I think that's that's our time. Thank you so much, Erica. Will you be arguing in front of the U.S. Supreme Court yourself, Erica? Will you be, uh, you know, waving your arms, spinning around, being dramatic? <laughs> Will you be, you know, be like an uh, Al Pacino moment in Injustice for All when you say, you know, no, Justice, you're out of order? Like, will you, will you personally be uh, making oral arguments? No, I will be sitting at the table. I am co-lead with my my colleague. So I I wrote the briefs and he he gets to argue and he deserves it. He's been working on this issue for 30 years and he's going to do a great job. Well, we'll all be watching very, very closely. So thank you so much for your good work. She is Erica Smith, attorney with the Institute for Justice. And thanks again, Erica. Thank you. All right, for Commentary of the Week, I picked Dale Rusikoff in the New York Times, who reviewed Robert Pondicio's new book about Success Academy. The New York Times book review was called The Secret to Success Academy's Top-Notch Test Scores. Parents, basically, was what the premise of this was. And boy, this made me absolutely crazy. Normally, by the way, when I think of Commentary of the Week, I think of something I agree with. Here, it's not the case. But... Let, let me break this down just quickly. Uh, so so this Dale Rusikoff takes one aspect of Robert's book that this school, Success Academy, the largest charter school in New York City, attracts and keeps a higher percentage of motivated parents than the district schools. And 
For this book reviewer, that makes the entire story of Success Academy. In fact, it's just one facet, maybe probably a small facet of their success, when Success Academy teachers have a longer school day, and that's not in the book review, and Success Academy teachers have a longer school year, and that's not in the, in the book review, and Success Academy teachers can be evaluated and dismissed in ways district teachers can't, and that's not in the book review. All kinds of, there's probably hundreds of other things that will completely distinguish Success Academy from the district schools, none of which are of interest to this one book reviewer, Dale Rusikoff. The one thing that interests her is the honest admission in Robert Pondicio's book that a different kind of parent does attend Success Academy. So when I see shade thrown on that, well, I tweeted, I, I went a little berserk this week. I said, I wrote, I tweeted out, Success Academy saves lives. Put that in your review. I've been there myself, by the way, and in this school and sat and watched it. I've also, I also, you know, met and, and interviewed Eva Moskowitz, the head of Success Academy. But, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's, it's, it's a metaphor. It's a, you know, the, the, the idea is that Success Academy is is by, impl- uh, by by having rules and standards, it it suggests in this review that that's some sort of discriminatory cherry picking, arguing one might imp- infer, arguing that by not having high rules and standards, you will not be rejecting these certain families that can't meet your high standards, and therefore it's fairer because you have not rejected the families that can't meet the high standards. And that, to me, is such hypocrisy. I mean, the irony is that many of these same people who are luxuriating in their posh New York City opulence, virtual signal- signaling their deprecations on Success Academy, for enforcing these higher standards in the district schools, themselves benefited from schools that had higher behavioral standards the New York City district schools. Well, it's infuriating. Of course, did. Of, it's, it, of course they did. And yes, it's infuriating. And, and the other thing it is, is it's, it's a very um, it thinly shrouded, just terrible critique of parents. So are we to say then that parents no matter what their socioeconomic status is, because we know that Success Academy is not serving the wealthy New York elite, right? But that parents shouldn't have um, a right to say, this is the kind of environment I want for my kids. And so I am going to use, by the way, public school choice to do that. I want, you know, it's, we shouldn't um, look down upon parents for exercising what they want to be in the best interest of kids, because every parent, no matter what their socioeconomic background, you know, cultural background, racial identity, wants the best for kids. And when all parents are the same and they don't have the same level of participation interest in a school, that's true. There are disparities in any population in that regard. So so to me, she said the review symbol. It's a different kind of kid. You know, these are the same critiques that we get when we say when um, we talk about schools where um, most of the children are black. And then we say, oh, well, those schools are so terribly segregated when the fact of the matter is black parents are making that choice for their children. It's the same line of reasoning. And I think that it's incredibly biased against, um, you know, the communities that most need schools like success academies, the communities that most want these schools. Yeah, it's condescending to imply the same kind of high standards that this writer benefited from are unfair for poor black and Hispanic families. As we see lines form of new black and Hispanic families to get into success academy because the waiting list is so long. But yet she says those 
high standards are unfair to, I guess, the other black and Hispanic families that are not in line. When she herself benefited, I would wager from high standards. And, then, and let me say one last thing. The, the deeper issue to me is like, what are standards? What are rules? Like, in other words, every school on earth, even the worst, most dysfunctional district school has some kinds of rules, right? Like maybe kids have to show up more than half of the school days to get a passing grade. They have some sort of rules. I mean, every rule, if there's a rule at all, it's going to separate rule followers from non-followers. And you could therefore say it is... Uh, you know, in some ways, cherry picking those who will follow even the most minimal of rules. So it, what it's posing as this uh, as this, you know, defense of the parents that are, you know, that are cherry picked out. It's posing is that what it really is, is an attack on standards generally, because all standards by very by their very definition imply some sort of consequence for not meeting the standard. And so because Success Academy standards are high, that's supposed to be bad, according to this reviewer, because some people may not meet it in terms of uh, parental participation. So that's a bad thing to have high standards. Well, then what standards, in other words, her, her, her attack is, can be equally applied to any standard at all, presuming any standard has a consequence. It could therefore theoretically cherry pick. And therefore, if that is her problem with Success Academy, which it is, then her problem is essentially illogical because she's attacking basically accountability and its face. Well, I think that it's probably safe to say that Pondicio not only um, knew he was going to stir up this kind of controversy, but wanted to stir up this kind of controversy in writing this book. And I think that your reaction to uh, this review, Bob, is um, is to the point of the what we've chosen as the tweet of the week. So the tweet of the week from Bob uh, Bellafiore saying, I'm both happy and sad for my friend at Robert Pondicio who has poked a bear that has poked a beehive and now they're both looking for him. Hashtag how the other half learns. So I had to say, this is this is exactly what we're talking about here, right? Success Academy has, is... I don't know you, if they're looking for... You think Success, Success Academy is mad at... Academy is and not attract this kind of negative attention because the world is just full of haters. And I have to admit to not having read the book yet, it is on my desk. I'm looking forward to it. But man, the, the controversy is sure, um, you know, making it call to me even more. Well, it met it made even both it made both the commentary of the week and tweet of the week. So that is a uh, you know for for the it's learning curve podcast. That is you're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome, Mr. Pondicio. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right then. Uh, let's, let's see. Next week we have a fantastic guest, Nina Reese, lined up the uh, the president of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. As we're talking about all of these charter school fights in not just California, but, uh, gee, uh, the, the, the presidential nomination among Democrats who are running for president, uh, it's become a big issue and all kinds of states were seeing pushbacks against charter schools. So Nina Reese, the great Nina Reese, will be joining us for the next episode of, Learn, of The Learning Curve. Looking forward to it. Do I close? You close. <laughs> and so, but that's all the time we have for now, everybody. Uh, my name is Bob Bowden with, uh, on behalf of Kara Kendall from the Pioneer Institute. Uh, I, uh, we bid you adieu and we'll see you next time. Until next week. <laughs>